Hello guys, hello, welcome. Welcome to another Kako Tea. It's a beautiful Saturday afternoon. It's actually pretty nice out here in my neck of the world. I hope that you guys are having some pleasant weather as well. I know a lot of folks in the islands who are locked in at this time are in isolation. And I just want to continuously keep, you know, telling you guys, you know, to stay safe, stay sane, do all the things that you need to do. Uh, you know, reach out to people, make sure you connect with friends and family on a regular and help get rid of this. Because I mean, we can only do it together if we don't really and truly we're going to be stuck in for a very long time if we don't actually pay attention to what we are being told as in staying staying indoors as much as we can. It's another beautiful um, Saturday. It's another Kakoti show. And as I promised, I bring I try to bring you a mix of everything every single week. And uh, this week is not, um, it's not like any other because we have a guest, another guest with me and um, a guest who shares my name, by the way. And I will tell you a little bit about how I met her and how we connected and uh you know now that we're live i just want to encourage folks to let me know that you if you're hearing if you if you can hear everything clearly if you're locked in where you're locked in from i always like to interact with you guys on the live so don't be scared as always uh, show some love and let me know that you're locked in and uh, you're safe you know um i i've been looking down for like a good like hour so my nose feels kind of like it's running away from me. So if I keep doing this, I don't have Corona. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I just have um, the sniffles. So um, don't mind me. And uh, I hope that I can, you know, bring you guys uh, an awesome show this week. Now, um, I met my guest whose name is JL, um, my namesake. <laughs> uh, I met her. She, 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 she's I don't know how to even explain. Like when I like I know I know how I met her, but to explain the connection, knowing that you have the same name with someone, I'll get to that in a little bit. But I was supposed to meet up with someone that we know mutually um, who was doing a book launch. And um the person said to me, or the person's Desmond, he said to me, Oh, we're meeting up at this restaurant and whatever. Anyways, they were running behind, and I get to the restaurant and he sends me a text message and he says, Yeah, if you just go in, go look for um JL. And I'm like, he says he says it right in the conversation. And I was like, is he calling my name? Like, like, is something wrong? <laughs> like, because he keeps saying, just ask for JL. I'm like, is he sending me somebody else's message? And so I'm like, Well, I'm here right now. Um who should I ask for? He's like, JL. And I'm like, who? He's like, oh, JL, ask for JL. Her name is JL too. You guys have the same name. So I walk into the restaurant and there she is. And we said hi and we, we get to talking and turns out we have like a lot of mutual people that we know. Uh, we just never met each other. Um, she knows my, she knows actually two of my cousins. Um, she, her kid and their kids, they play uh, basketball together and they know each other. And it was just coincidence. And, and, and they were like, oh, it, it was just a matter of time. And I'm like, yo, y'all never told me that y'all knew somebody else who had the same name as me. Like what's going on? What's up with that? Anyhow, we got to meet in and uh, found out a little bit more about her. I think she's an amazing woman. 
doing great things here in Canada. And I felt the need to, to especially during this time when, when people are home and people are wondering what to do. She's an author, uh, she, she writes uh, for CBC. And I just felt, you know, it would be a really, really great time to get her on the show today. So without no further ado, just wanna welcome my guests uh, this time. Say, send some love to the other JL. Hi, JL. How are you? I'm right. I'm right. Ready to roll. <laughs> yes. Uh, welcome, to, welcome to Kako Tea. It's so nice to have you here uh, with me. And well, first of all, before we even we even um, get into you know the, the conversation, what was it like meeting another JL? Well, I think the thing that's significant about it is not just meeting another JL because I have seen other JLs like on TV. I've heard about other JLs. I think it's the black JL thing that is like <laughs> particularly was particularly exciting for me. Um, there is a girl in Brampton also named JL. Uh, she's younger, so I know her mom, but mm -hmm. I've never met her. And so she's the only other black JL that I know like exists in the world. It's a, it's a Jewish name. So a lot of people who are uh, Jewish or um, of a Hebrew background, they, they uh, have the name JL, which they usually pronounce Yael. Uh, so it's very, it's, it's unusual to meet someone with the name JL, but it, you are for sure the first black JL I ever met. And I feel like that's, that's special. Yeah. Oh, I feel so special. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on the show with me. Um, I like to get the show started. Every single show is pretty much the same in terms of how we I go about introducing my guests. A lot of times, uh, folks, there's a perception of who you are mm. out there, and people tend to have their own ideas as to who an individual is. I always start my show by asking, who are you? Oh. <laughs> I mean, that is like a big philosophical question. Who are you? Um, I think, I don't know. Well, I know what I do. What I do for a living is I'm an author. I am the artistic director and founder of the Festival of Literary Diversity and the Fold Foundation, which is a festival that really focuses, celebrates, uh, highlights underrepresented authors and storytellers. So that's what I do. Um, I'm a mom. Um, I'm a I'm a wife. Um, I'm a mom of one plus three teenagers that have come into my life, um, and I think that's really a lot about who I am. I've learned a lot about who I am from being a parent and being a, a wife, and so I think those things aren't things that single-handedly define me, but they've come to shape me. Um, I'm also a person of faith, so I think I'm very much driven by. Uh, what I believe, and um, that certainly influences like uh, a very strong, large percentage of who I am. Um, and yeah, so those, that's a very long answer to your, uh, you know, three word question, four word question. <laughs> <laughs> How are you dealing with? Because uh, you're you're in you're in Toronto right now. How are you dealing with um, this new life of seclusion, aka isolation, aka quarantine? <laughs> Um, so I live in Brampton, just outside of Toronto, and normally this time of year, I'm planning a literary festival that also takes place in Brampton. And so usually it's a lot of like driving around, moving around, picking my kid up, taking him to basketball, but then also doing like work. So I have to say for me, quarantine um, has been kind of good. 
I don't, I shouldn't say that, but, um, in that I've, I've had a lot more time at home. Uh, I work from home normally, but there's just less to do. Uh, there's lots of other things that I'm obligated to do. Um, we've turned our festival into a completely virtual and online festival. So I'm still working really hard at that. I have a lot of work to do every day, but I feel a little bit more actually capable of getting everything done because I'm not running around doing all the other things. Um, I think the hardest thing for me has been mixing in you know, kind of helping my son through school while I'm doing that. That's been a little bit of a tricky balance, but I'm finding, I'm finding a groove, you know, week three, I'm figuring things out. <laughs> That's good. How, how do you feel like mentally? Do you feel, how do I feel mentally? Um, mentally it goes up yeah. and down. Yeah. Mentally it goes up and down. I think when it's good, it's great. It's fine. When it's hard, like when my son and I aren't getting along or when my husband and I aren't getting along or when I have to clean or do other things or, or those things that generally cause friction, I think that's the hardest time because there's no escape. There's no where to go. There's no other people to sort of like, you know, hug on and be like, you know, it's going to be okay. It's sort of, you kind of have to work through all these conflicts and issues and just sort of face the same people the next day and the next day. So, um, I think that, um, emotionally I sort of go up and down. Um, I'm kind of a roll with the punches kind of person though I'm realizing. So it's, um, you deal with the disappointment of like lost opportunities, things that you wanted to do, things that you're planning to do, trips that you're planning to do. And once I sort of get past that, I sort of make a new reality for myself. And it's just like, oh, this is going to be my life for the next, you know, oh, six weeks, eight weeks, however long this is going to continue months. Um, I sort of build a new reality from that and, and just try and find good things that I can only do during quarantine, for example. And so that's been kind of fun. Nice, very nice. Um, Chana, we want to get into your, your life a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, for the folks who don't know, um, besides being an author, you you are also somewhat the child of someone who is famous. Yes. Um, you are the daughter of Chuck Ely, who was the very first black man mm -hmm. to win the Grey Cup. Mm -hmm. What was your childhood like? Like, was <laughs> dad? So, so the Grey Cup is like Canada's Super Bowl and um, the Canadian Football League is Canada's only like national sports league. It's the only league we have where it's all Canadian teams. We briefly had a few American teams that didn't work out so well. We're back to just all Canadian teams. And my dad uh, was the first black quarterback to win the Grey Cup. And uh, actually growing up was like... I had a weird um, childhood in that I thought my childhood was, was really normal. Like I thought that I lit and I want to put quotation marks around normal. Cause I think we, we make assumptions about what normal is. Um, but growing up, I thought it was, and I think every kid maybe thinks that their life is normal and it's not until some point in life where people point out like, that's not normal for whatever reason. For me, I thought it was normal. My dad had been famous, but he wasn't like, hugely famous by the time I came around he wasn't playing sports anymore not everybody watches the Canadian Football League so um I could go lots of places and he was just like a normal dad I would go other places and people would lose their minds around him and tell me like a thousand stories about the games he won and the things he did so those were the moments where I was kind of like what's going on what's wrong with this person why are they asking him to sign their napkin um and I think I didn't realize until much later in life that I had grown up quite privileged, that we had were, were quite affluent. Um, and I would say like middle to upper class and weren't like living in a giant house with like five cars, but 
um, I had sort of, uh, my dad really took good care of us and he went, he was, grew up very poor, but had built a life for me where, um, we just had everything we wanted, everything we needed. Um, and so I think that's something that I, 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 when I, my first book, the stone thrower is about my dad's life. It's about his career. And when I learned about his career, what I, what I came to find in my twenties, as I was about to become a mother, I, I started researching and then I went to write this book. And it was in writing the book that I could really look back and be like, oh, our life was a little bit above normal. And my dad did all that. He went from poverty to privilege in like less than a generation. He made it happen in his lifetime. And so um, I guess that's what's a little bit unusual about my life. You, you mentioned normal. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was going to go back. When you realize that it was, things were not normal. When exactly? Yeah. When did I realize, you know, it's funny because I don't think maybe it was in university that I really understood it wasn't normal, but I remember being, I don't want to use the word teased because I don't think you're teased for being, but I was, I remember people making fun of me or sort of laughing at me because like, um, because I would drive my parents' car to school sometimes and they always had nice cars, like quote unquote, normal, nice cars, not like the really expensive, really, really expensive cars. I went to like a normal public school, mm -hmm. um, but like I, I drove like a Toyota 4Runner to school sometimes and um, people would comment on that. And to me, it was just like, oh, your parents have a car. They're not using it that day. You drive it to school. But like now I know like that's very expensive. <laughs> I now live my own life and I'm like the things that we had, two cars, one parent at home, these are like very... Uh, affluent ways to live. And, um, but at the time it just, I don't know, it felt normal. I mean, my, I remember my dad saying his life felt normal. He grew up in the projects and in the sixties in America and he felt like that was normal. And so when I was writing the book, there was a lot of that, a lot of my dad teaching me what his normal was and me unpacking what I thought normal was. And, but I, I really grew up quite clueless. I grew up quite clueless about money about privilege about a whole bunch of things and it it was like gradually over my high school years and certainly in university when I really shaped it and felt like oh I get what I've been missing I get the things that I haven't really paid attention to and seen you wrote uh, a memoir it's called the stone for you you've written the actual book and then you you've done a follow-up book which is um for a children's book yeah Called with the same name. Yeah. Um, how was it? First of all, why did you decide that you needed to write this book? I, I like her. Yeah, she's like, I got it right here. Yes. <laughs> and it's available on Audible. It's available everywhere. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I think it's helpful to see this is the, the memoir, and then it was turned into a kid's book. So, that's the kid's book there. Very good. Um, so, why? Um, so there was a point where they were making a documentary about my dad's life uh, in his hometown in Ohio in the States. And there was something that happened in the documentary. They were going through it and they were talking about my grandmother and my grandmother passed away when I was in grade nine. And so I'm watching this when I'm about 21, like out, out of university or in the middle of university. I can't quite remember somewhere in those early 20 years. Mm -hmm. And we're watching this documentary and they start talking about how my grandmother dropped out of school in grade eight. And I was like, I had no clue. I had no idea. And I'm looking around at my mom, at my sister, my brother, my dad, and sort of being like, is this true? Like, 
And they're, of course, like, yeah, of course it's true. Didn't you know that kind of thing? And I'm like, no, I didn't know that. And I started to get really angry that these men, um, and they were, they were white men, which I think is important and not important at the same time. But I started to get angry that these people knew my dad more than I did, that, that they had found out things about my own family that I didn't know, either because my dad hadn't told me or because I hadn't been paying close attention. And so I thought, you know, I really want to know his story. And I really want it to be told from like my perspective, our perspective. And so that's when I really thought, you know, my dad's story is important, but also this is something like I need to know. I was going through a lot of stuff in university about like questioning what it meant to be black and what it meant to be, to grow up with privilege, what it meant to have um, light skin privilege. I was thinking about all these things and I just thought, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't know how to process it. I don't know what to do. I don't know if I'm Canadian. I don't know. And so I, I thought if I figured out my dad's story, maybe I could figure all these other questions out at the same time. And so that's really how the memoir came about. And the memoir really, it follows my dad's life, but it also um, unpacks my own experiences growing up in Canada because I felt like half of the story was that my dad has this incredible life story. Like, winning the Grey Cup is like the smallest, most least interesting part of my dad's story in some ways to me. Um, and, uh, but it was also that he had never talked about it. To me, that was the most fascinating piece that he had all these things that were going on and had gone on in his life and he never talked about it. And so the book ends up being like, why didn't he talk about it? And what kind of effect did that have on me? And uh, all those things tied together. There, there's some, there's somewhere in the book where you, well, a lot of the book is, has to do with the race aspect mm -hmm. of it, being black in the States, because your dad is American, mm -hmm. or was, was born in, in, in the States at least, and moved to Canada. Um, but you speak a lot about being black in America and black in Canada, mm -hmm. and, and the similarities and the differences and all of these, all of these. How do you compare life as a black Canadian compared to what your dad went through as a black American. I know it's different times, yeah. but, but um, how do you compare based on your research in developing the book? Yeah, so it's really tricky because um, there's a lot of people who will say that there's no racism in, in Canada and that Canada is so much better and Canada is so different. And I, that is not at all true. Um, I think there are ways that the racism in Canada is different than the racism in America. And that's what most interests me is like how racism functions and where its roots are and how it, how it exhibits itself. And so one of the things that I became really aware of, and I think most people who've traveled to the States notice this or have seen this, is that racism in America is really built right into the geography of the country. You know, if you go into any city, um, especially any major city, there is literally a line, a border, a bridge, a river, or a train, train tracks that divide where uh, the black, the black community begins. And it's usually a low income, um, crime ridden kind of division. And it's because of segregation, right? It's because slavery happened in America. It happened in, uh, it was one of the most horrific forms of slavery in history because it wasn't just about enslaving a group of people. It was constantly disseminating and breaking down the family. And so um, fathers, mothers, children were constantly being split apart and spread apart so that the family 
breakdown was at the core of um, was one of the worst parts of slavery that, you know, physical abuse is one thing, but, you know, we're seeing it right now in quarantine. Imagine the, the lengths of separation. Imagine being in love with someone and never being able to see them again. Imagine constantly feeling in isolation. And once you feel close being separated again, and then on top of it, add all the horrific things that happened. And so that happened. And then uh, emancipation happened and the black community spread apart. And, but they were segregated, so they weren't allowed to live in certain areas. And so people, um, this is a really long answer to the question, but basically it just becomes so entrenched generation after generation into the way that the country functions, where mm -hmm. people live, what opportunities they have. You know, in the States, for example, um, school boards uh, are funded by the communities that they're in. And so if you're in a low-income community, the disparity continues generation after generation after generation. It just gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. And the people who are not in these uh, uh, oppressed communities, things get better and improve. And, and so the separation between the haves and the have-nots, particularly between the white and the black communities, um, just gets bigger and bigger. And in Canada, we don't have that same entrenched geography. And when we had slavery and when we had, we as in Canada, had mm -hmm. slaves, um, there was only one or two because we didn't have, uh, we had winter. And so there weren't these large farms that you could take care of, these plantations that you could take care of year round. So the black community in Canada is really spread out and is really desperate in a very different way. Um, there's lower populations in many areas. They're spread out across the land. The land is wider and less populated. Um, and so for me, I describe the difference between American and Canadian uh, racism as um, in Canada, we're a very divided community. We're spread out. We feel disconnected physically, geographically, and then also emotionally sometimes. And in America, it's it's kind of the opposite. There, where the racism is like densely packed and continuous and ongoing, and um, the structure of that kind of racism leads to different kinds of uh, results um, and different kinds of experiences for Black people, but um, always with like complications. You you call the the memoir the Stone Thrower. Mm -hmm. Why that name? Yeah, so I'm terrible with name titles. So actually that wasn't, <laughs> I had a really terrible one that I will not repeat because it was that bad. Um, it should have just called draft one. That's what I should have just called it. But um, the stone throwing scene. So when my dad was about 10 years old, he lived in the segregated community that was divided by a set of train tracks. And he got the opportunity to go to a Catholic school. He chose to, um, he became a Christian and went to this Catholic school or became Catholic, I guess, um, and went to this Catholic school that was on the other side of the train tracks in the white community. And so he would tr um, cross these tracks all the time, every day. Um, and most of the other uh, black kids in the community, everyone except two other boys would do the same. They would stay in the um, general community where they were. My dad and these two other boys would cross the tracks. But my dad was often crossing these tracks alone, especially initially. And um, he would go there and he would take these stones and he wanted to learn how to throw better when he was by himself. And so he would throw stones at the train as it went by and he would aim for the letters on the train. And so that there was a study that was done that sort of said that was how he became this phenomenal quarterback because he learned to time throws based on working with trains. And so that scene opens the book as the story I always heard growing up and became 
the, you know, the impetus for um, the title, The Stone Thrower. And then the kids book is all about that stone throwing scene. It's like really the central story of the kids book. So same title for two books. (laughs) Um, Speaking of your your dad a little bit, I know I, I really want to encourage folks to go out and get the book. You can get it. It's available on practically anywhere, Amazon, everywhere it's available. Um, but I want you to tell me a little bit about um, you, why your dad left America and moved mm-hmm. to Canada. It's in the book, yeah. but just a touch on it just a little bit. So why did he leave America? Because we're told I'm, Caribbean from from I'm from the Caribbean. We're told that North America is the land of privilege, and anyone who left the Caribbean wanted to migrate either to England or North America. But your dad left the U.S. Yeah. and came over to Canada. Why did that happen? Yeah. So um, this is a spoiler, but not a spoiler because it's you know a true story. You can look it up anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. But my dad um, had won all of his high school. Um, football games, which is how he got a scholarship to university. And then he won all of his um, university games. So he is on record the winningest quarterback in college football history. If you look up the NCAA um, football records, he's, you know, when I go into schools, I tell kids he's won more college games than Tom Brady. And they're like, what? (laughs) Um, It's true. It's true. It's true. Um, And so he, uh, he won all these games in college. But then when he was coming out in his senior year, the NFL was sort of interested in him, obviously. But in 1972, they didn't have black quarterbacks. And so um, my dad was a quarterback. He only wanted to play quarterback. They were offering positions playing running back and doing all these other jobs, wide receiver, et cetera, et cetera. And my dad said, no, I don't want to do those. I I have only played quarterback. I would like to continue playing quarterback or I'll just start working because I have my degree. And um, so the NFL, uh, all of the NFL teams universally rejected him. They did not draft him, not the first draft, not the second, not the third. Um, There were obviously quarterbacks who were not as strong as him who were drafted into the league. And, And my dad just sort of shrugged it off. And the Canadian Football League came knocking. And that's how we ended up in Canada. The Hamilton Tiger Cats wanted him to play for them. And so he did. And he went and played for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And in his rookie year, won the Grey Cup and was MVP of the uh, rookie of the year and then MVP of the Grey Cup. So it's like this really incredible kind of Disney level story. (laughs) Um, But it's also a really interesting one because it was probably the part of the story that I found the hardest. I just sort of said like, and it happened in his college years as well. He was offered scholarships to schools, but not to play quarterback. And he said no. And I was just kind of like, what are you thinking? Like, why not just just play? Just who cares about playing quarterback? And I think my dad was just really principled in saying like, no, if they're if they don't want me for the sport, the the position I play, then I don't want them. And, you know, I mean, it worked out, but I still think it might have been a little crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you wrote um, for the most for most of my life. I have felt watery like an ocean. My sense of self disoriented and bottomless. My blackness lost and out of place in a country known for cold winters, covered in whiteness. And I don't know how I got here to this place of uncertainty. I have. I just know it has something to do with my father. What exactly do you mean? Mm. 
Yeah, that's probably, I mean, that's the opening line of the book. And it, I would, I'm not, I, I know it sounds vain, but it's my favorite line in the book. <laughs> you don't have to read any further. After you read that, I'm brilliant. I'm brilliant. And the brilliance is done. Um, no, I really love that, that sentence because it captures a whole bunch of things in, in a quite um, packed way. Um, I think the part about, um, about growing up in a place covered in whiteness and about, um, feeling lost and out of place. I think those are two things that really, you know, if I think back to my childhood and my high school years, that was like at the roots that I always felt lost. My blackness felt watery. It felt like something I couldn't quite touch or hold on to. I was never black enough for anybody. Um, and I didn't even know if the word black belonged to me for a while. Like, could I use that term? Should I use that term? Um, why? Um, I think because, you know, I talk about it a little bit in the book in, in America, when you're just a little bit black, you're black, right? Like my mom looks very, very light, but she is, um, indisputably in America black, like nobody would question it. And in Canada, it was the opposite. Like, if you don't look quite black enough, people will will take your blackness from you. You're not quite black. If you don't act black enough, they will also sort of take your blackness from you. Well, you're not really black. And so for me, I grew up going to like a horseback riding camp. And I grew up, um, you know, just doing things that um, liking music that wasn't exclusively black or uh wasn't considered black if you can even call things that but I had a lot of white friends um and so it was just sort of perceived that I wasn't quite black enough and I didn't understand what to do with that you know I didn't always date black men um and so there was just all these questions about like what does it mean to be black I mean I think that was the root of the question what does it mean to be black and I think in high school, people tell you what that means. It means that you you listen to hip hop, you dress a certain way, you talk a certain way. In Canada, I mean, I think it's deeply rooted to the country that your family is from. So I think, you know, you're really black if you're Jamaican and you're really black if you're Trini and you're really black if you're from any West Indian island. You are like solidly black, right? If you can speak Patois, if you know how to go to Caravana and really dance, like you are black. Um, but when you're from, when your family's from America and like, you don't know, you don't understand Patois at all. And you know, you're bringing like cold pizza for lunch when other people are bringing like chicken and rice and like, you know, soul food. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's all these things about like, does that mean I'm not black? Um, and I actually had people say, you're not really black. You're not, you're not black, like black, black. People would say that to me all the time. And so even as I started to like define myself as black and long to be black, I I was getting like rejection from white and black people and in between. So that's what that first line means. (laughs) Okay. So growing up, you, you decided of all the things in the world, you wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to take that? Yeah, that was a late discovery. Um, Most of my writing friends have been writing since they were kids and always thought, like, I'll write a book. Um, When I was in high school, I actually wanted to be an actor, and I was actually deeply involved in theater. And so it wasn't until I went to university and was really acting 
and then took a playwriting class that I started to understand the power of, of voice. And I remember there's this moment in my theater class, I was working on a play about a mixed race girl um, who moves to Toronto on her own and is trying to like figure herself out. And so we're supposed to get into character and my teacher came around and tapped me on the shoulder and gave me a word. And I was just supposed to take that word as my character and like unpack it. And the word she gave me was well. And, and I was like, I remember distinctly, I was like a well, a whole deep, dark, black, you call me black, and then I'm black, and then I'm nothing. And I just like, woo, started rolling. And I was in tears. But it was like the best, the best kind of writing you do, like when it comes right from like a deep place. And my classmates were like, what? And that moment for me was when I discovered how powerful voices and story is and how it was really like inside me. You know, I didn't like acting in theater because I wanted to be um, a star. What I liked was telling stories and conveying those stories. And those stories were about what I saw and what I experienced, but also about what I wanted to understand more. And so writing my dad's story was like the next step in that, was like telling that. I think for me, my next book is really, <laughs> where I'm going to really, really figure out if I'm a writer, like an author, an author, a capital A proper, because, because it's going to be the first time I share something I've created entirely from my own brain. And I'm not sure <laughs> to be honest about it. Like I'm not really sure, but I know that writing for me is a really powerful way to unpack the world. And it's a really powerful way to unpack things that you believe and think about that you just have kept inside for a really long time. It's like anybody who journals, you go back and look and it chronicles like big moments, deep thoughts, twisted sometimes, awkward sometimes, but like really powerful moments. And when you craft those into polished stories, um, it's a really powerful moment to share um, the inspiration that comes to you. And um, I think it's a calling. Like, I don't think everybody is meant to be a writer. I think everybody should write as a practice, but I think um, the calling for me is great. Oh, I lost you. I hope we're not lost to each other. Oh, there we're back, we're back. <laughs> You're saying, I think everybody should write. <laughs> I think everybody should write. Um, but yeah, I think that when you're, when you take it on as a craft, as like, you know, the job that you're meant to do, um, it's a really powerful, um, it's a, it's a powerful sword, you know, it's a really powerful weapon that you wield when you're a writer. And uh, I love it. I mean, I just, I mean, I hate editing, but I love, I love sharing stories. It's funny you say that because I never looked at myself as a writer. I've always looked at myself as a radio personal, personality, radio. I'll just talk my way into And, and it's, it's after, of course, going through this university experience, you realize, oh my God, like, I'm really probably good at this. You know, I, I could be good at this. You know, like telling both um, fiction and nonfiction stories, you know, um, and I'm just growing to love telling stories, you know. Yeah. I still don't think I'm a writer, but um, I don't know if that's something that I want to pursue. You never know. But I think all of us have a little bit of 
a writer in us. And it's just a matter yeah. of tapping into that. Well, and I also think, I think there's a bit of, um, I think in the Black community in particular, we have to really uh, think about our role as writers. Um, and I say this because I think this isn't universally true. And so I have to sort of like, uh, there's a bit of a generalization here, but but bear with me for a second. Yeah. <laughs> for, I think in amongst a lot of my um, white friends, I think there's imposter sy syndrome for all writers. I think all writers sort of question whether they're actually writers or good writers. But there seems to be a, a, a gentler, an easier sense that they're amongst white friends, white folks, that writing is something that they can do and are supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, and I, I can't speak for all Black people, but I think that many in the Black community, it's not something you necessarily think you're meant to do early on or that you're encouraged to do early on as like a practice and a job or a thing. And, and um, I think we're, we are excellent storytellers. Um, and so I try and get out to schools and talk to as many people as possible because I think I never thought of myself as a writer. Every writer I read when I was younger was white. And so it would never surprise me to meet a white writer, but to meet writers from other communities was like, oh, you can do that. <laughs> you can do that. And so there's a little bit of like, I, I always say, I think it takes, it took me and I think it takes many black folks a little bit longer to accept that they are writers and storytellers, um, especially if they don't grow up in a home where, that is like a craft that's encouraged, that's pressed, that's fostered. Um, a lot of the excellent, like lifelong, I've been writing since I was a kid who are black. Oftentimes I find they had parents who were telling them to write or parents who were writers or professors who understood the value of that. And there was kind of a fostering, but much more often I come across people like you and myself who are good at it. It's something we do well, but it's not something we're necessarily like massaged into at an early age. And so we come at it later. We feel like imposters longer. Um, it's, it's things that we have to constantly sort of remind ourselves. I'm a writer. This is a space I'm meant to be in. And I look mm -hmm. often to, in Canada, we have a lot of uh, really phenomenal indigenous writers and indigenous writers in Canada have not had the kind of support and access that they should have had all along. But I find that because storytelling is such an intrinsic part of their communities, that there is, when they get into it, it is like a space they just, they not only like dominate, but they, there's a confidence behind it that I think I still am working at, to be honest. That, that is, it's so, it's, it's funny you, you say that because um, even trying to write about things that are non-Black, is always is always like something because I'm like oh I don't want to be pigeonholed right yeah and then you start writing something that is not black related or has nothing to do with your community um, like I wrote this story about a, 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 a redheaded long hair pale faced girl right right and uh, who I called Hope and it had nothing to do with being black or anything and someone who read it said to me it's funny you you wrote that um. Where did you get your inspiration from? Mm -hmm. Um, a human being. I observe things. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't you think we see what's out there, or we only see what's within our communities? Yeah. Like we see everything, just like everybody else. It's I'm just able to, I guess. Well, 
it's funny too because in the industry there's a lot of push if you're black to write black capital Mm -hmm. b-l-a-c-k stories and you know two two funny stories that that makes me think of one eden robinson is an indigenous writer and she was like you know she is a huge name and I hadn't read her. And so when I found out that she was huge and that I should have read her, I picked up a book. It's called blood score. I read it. There are no indigenous people in the story. And I was like, what, how, you You know, I was like, had all these questions and in Mm -hmm. subsequent books and other stories, there are like a lot of indigenous characters very much rooted in, in um, indigenous storytelling. But it was, it was a really, uh, important moment for me to read that and realize, A, we don't have to just be experts in our own, um, in, in one kind of story that we can tell lots of different stories. And um, also it just, it, it just reminded me of that, the way that we, I was pigeonholing her and the way people would perhaps pigeonhole me or pigeonhole other writers. Um, another thing that happened to me is when um, there's a uh, a magazine called Room, and it's a magazine for women, and they did um, a black, um, I'm going to call it a black issue, but they did an issue where they specifically, it I was, like yeah, <laughs> where it highlighted the black community, um, and it was all, uh, all the submissions were by black um, uh, women and non-binary writers. And so I actually wrote a nonfiction piece about um, a woman who suffers multiple miscarriages, and it was, uh, it's probably one of my favorite things. Uh, I, I'm really proud of it. I really loved writing it. It's very personal. It's very powerful. I've used it to share with other uh, women who have gone through what I went through. And um, I think I was so grateful to them for that issue because I think when I write, I so want people to learn something, know something about the Black community, to unpack something that maybe they didn't know before or to unpack something that I'm unpacking. I don't know, but I, I, it's so important to me. Like, and it doesn't mean any like insult to your story about hope, but like, that's a really hard thing for me to put out in the world, especially when you have names like ours where people don't necessarily know we're black. Right. So there's this, for me, just a deep need, probably rooted in always feeling like I'm not quite black enough to be really like to be doing something um, for I don't know. I don't know for the black community is the wrong word, but there's something right. And so being able to write a story that had nothing to do with race was really lovely. And what was extra lovely was to have it in an issue that was all about race Mm -hmm. so that it was, um, I, people don't lose sight of like what my, my story is or who I am. I don't know. There, there are things that it's, it's, it's something that everybody can relate to. Exactly. And I wanted it to be something everybody could relate to, but I also wanted it to be something that like a black woman wrote. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that if I just put it in like Chatelaine or like a magazine, there's just a sense that it's just like, it's, you know, a lot of white women would have come around and been like, Oh yeah. You know, but I, a black women don't talk about that a lot. We don't talk about miscarriages. There's a really lot. And so I wanted, I wanted somebody to be able to read it and know that a black woman had been through that and had, had, had written that. Yeah. Wow. Beautiful. You, you are the founder of Fold. Uh, that is, you, you mentioned it in, uh, a few times during our, our, our conversation. Yeah. Um, why did you feel that there was a need for this sort of festival? 
Yeah, so I um, in Canada, there are literary festivals across the country. They have them in in most large, but even a lot of small towns have um, have really amazing literary festivals. And when my first book came out, I didn't really understand how the publishing industry or literary festivals worked. And you know, my dad had been this famous CFL quarterback. I thought, oh, in these cities where he had been a, a major name, they're for sure going to want to invite us, right? It'd be like having a celebrity. <laughs> Oh, maybe they'll invite dad. And so I just thought that um, I, I would I would get invitations to festivals and I didn't. And I really love literary festivals. So I went to them. But I realized every time I went to them, I had this really awkward feeling of like oftentimes being the only black person in the room, um, oftentimes just feeling kind of stared at, kind of like I didn't fit in or didn't belong. Um, I went to one literary festival and I was in a dialogue workshop. And the woman who chose the excerpt that we sort of worked on in the class, um, she chose an excerpt that was about two white folks talking about their slave, their black, their black maid, I guess not slave, but black, black maid. And I was like, oh, this is awkward. And then I was really angry. I was like, of all the, the dialogue scenes in the entire world, oh my God. <laughs> who would pick this? And then like, oh, if you picked this, you probably assumed there wasn't going to be a black person in the room. And so there was all these things that were happening and that I was seeing. And um, there was this movement going on in the States about how we need more diverse books and how the same problems were happening in, in the U.S. And I just realized, like, the only way to make a change was to maybe do a festival where, like, we started with uh, marginalized voices. And I live in a city just outside Toronto. Like, it takes me 30 minutes to drive into the city, 30 minutes by train even. Um, and so I thought, well, I'm going to set this... Um, festival in my city where there's no festivals and no major events and I'm going to center it around underrepresented storytellers and we're going to make this a really like epic festival um without uh by doing everything differently by really starting with underrepresented storytellers uh, by not trying to pitch these like huge names all the time but really looking at the ways we can leverage big names with um, really important voices. Um, yeah. So that's, that's why and how it started. Now you, you most, for most people, um, because of COVID-19, coronavirus sweeping the world, um, everybody's put everything on hold, yes. but the whole festival continues. <laughs> Tell us how, how, because it's like your, your, your festival's about diversity and you've diversified <laughs> literally I know. Um, this time around. Tell us a little bit about how you've actually, um, uh, gotten the word out there, or kept up, and decided the festival is at the end of this month. And so that April the April thirtieth. April thirtieth, yeah, yeah. We right. have a few preview events, um, like April twenty fifth. We have one next weekend as well. But the main festival is the thirtieth to the third. Yeah. How did you manage to say I'm doing this, Corona or not? <laughs> um. Well, we had been doing webinars for um for a while. So like one-off uh, events, somebody teaches about a particular skill. So I knew we could do uh, workshops, that that was something that could be done online, no problem. But it wasn't until I watched, we were looking for a new webinar platform. That one was the one we started with where it was working very well. So I went to look at another webinar platform and I realized you could actually have a panel that you could have four authors talking from their own home and, um, and just, do a conversation and for fold panels are like our bread and butter they are the place where people 
most quickly recognize the difference between Fold and other literary festivals. Um, we curate the, the panels really carefully. We try and get as many intersections as possible. We choose moderators really carefully. And so it's when you come to the panels that I think people really are like, oh yeah, I get it. And so I had to find a way that a panel could work. That was a big thing. And so when I saw this webinar platform and I was like, oh, we could, we could do that. That could work. Um, that was a big moment. And then the second big moment was we had been given I won't say how many dollars, but a lot of dollars um, to put on these festivals, this festival. And we had been given the money to deliver it in a physical space. So for, for rental space and um, for sort of the production elements. But we had also been given the money largely to pay other authors. And so my big concern was, okay, we've been giving grant money from the government, from the Canada government, from the Ontario government, from our local city. We had been given, you know, a lot to do this. If we don't do it, we're going to give that money back. We're going to have to give that money back. Right. And the authors won't get that money. And that to me was the big, like, we have to figure out a way to deliver this festival. And the big question for people was, well, why don't you postpone it? Or, um, what was the other option? I cancel or postpone with the two like big conversations. And I was like, I don't want to postpone it. I don't a know when this crisis is going to end. B, I don't really want to be like stressing my life out in October again. Like I've already put all the stress in. Let's just end this like we always do. Um, and so those were the big pieces. I wanted to pay the authors. I, I wanted to make sure that the event went on. And then the last piece came a little bit uh, was, was sort of the icing. And it was that in these moments of crisis, underrepresented communities suffer the greatest. Underrepresented authors underrepresented um, citizens, um, low-income families, um, low-income Black families, low-income um, uh, racialized families, like uh, all these intersections, these kinds of crises impact those communities more than others. You know, in our Indigenous communities, they don't have clean water and we're doing all these other, you're supposed to stay home, stay quarantined, like all these things. It becomes infinitely more difficult. And so I just thought, I'm not going to add to that. I think in these times, we actually need something like Fold more than ever. And so that was also like um, sort of emotionally another layer to it that I thought um, these marginalized writers need this space more than others, mm -hmm. perhaps. And also our marginalized communities need to have the kind of support, information, encouragement, um, you know, a lot of people come to Fold to sort of get boosted up as writers, to sort of get uh, excited as teachers, as readers. And like, I just didn't want that to not be possible. Some folks might be looking around and be wondering, how can I be part of this? I mean, <laughs> it is absolutely free. Yes. So, yes. Which, is, which is super amazing. I remember, Jill, when we, when we met um, at The Rose, yeah. when we we connected at the rose and you were like oh if you're around you know we should do you should do something or whatever because but then you were planning on actually having an actual in a building event yeah and and now it's like online and then everybody's stuck in turn i'm like okay well guess i got i'm gonna have to reach out to jeff and tell them if she needs that but how do people how can people um get connected and and be part of this um literary festival 
Yeah, I honestly, I think the biggest way, especially this year, because we're kind of quarantined and it's super complicated. Usually I'd say volunteer if you're in the area, volunteer if you're coming. Um, but I, I think this year, the biggest way you can support the festival is to just come um, to to look up some events that you are interested in and to really just attend. And uh, I think the second step for that is if you have the opportunity is go to your library or go to your bookstore and sign out or purchase books by the authors who are there. Um, that's like the biggest gift for me this year. We are very blessed. Um, our sponsors, none of them pulled back in the virtual format. Um, none of our granting bodies pulled back in the virtual format and the virtual format is going to be a lot less costly for us to deliver this year in the way that we're doing it. So like we are good. We are good <laughs> for the festival, but I'm really like, I, these authors mean so much to me. And so I would say like, look up our authors, sign many, up, ask questions, buy the books, read the books, talk about the books. But, you know, if you like them, go on Goodreads and say how much you like them. That's, that's like the gem for me. About how many authors are, are you looking We at? have, um, I think about 24, 25, um, and uh, I will, I w can I highlight a few events that I would maybe like, like, um, so, <laughs> so I think one, we have a two part event called reconciliation and resistance. And so that's all about like, for me, activism, what it means to be an activist as a writer, what it means to be an activist as a reader, and how stories can challenge us, encourage us, push us, press us. Um, to do more for our communities. I think right now we're in COVID mode, right? We're, we're just trying to survive. But when we come out of this, there will be people who are extremely disadvantaged by what's happened. And uh, our governments are not necessarily set up to help. And so what can we do as citizens? What needs to be done? How do we protect the citizens that are most vulnerable? Those are what those two panels are about. It's May 1st at 8 p.m. Eastern time and then May 2nd at 8 p.m. Eastern time. There's two panels, so it'll be sort of a continual conversation. Following the Reconciliation and Resistance panel, there's also a jam that I want to mention, and that's the Poets Block Party. So four spoken word artists and then a DJ at intermission. And that's just going to be like a really good, you know, we can't get out to the clubs right now. We can't get out to these spoken word events. But to me, that's like our night jam. Um, it's one of the most popular events each year is the the spoken word. And it's a very different audience than our like literary book, bookish folks. It's late at night. So it's like when the when the nocturnal folks come out. Um, <laughs> and so that one's 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I know not for everybody that's not late at night. Um, it'll be different times around the world. Uh, but uh, for us, that's like our late night jam. And that'll be a lot of fun too. Yeah, I want to really encourage like a lot of young people um, yeah. across the Caribbean, because this show is seen throughout the Caribbean. I want to big up Digicel, who streams um, the, the show 30 countries across the Caribbean as well as in my home country of Dominica. I just want to um, encourage folks, you know, to to go on there. It's it's very simple. You just register for different different um, uh, webinars, whichever one you want to join. Yeah. And it's absolutely free. Absolutely free. And there's, there's a lot of webinars on writing, on reading as general. Um, the other one I wanted to mention, I should mention because I did theater, is there's one called The Politics of Theater. And when you sign up for The Politics of Theater, you'll actually get a link to a play. And it's really about a discussion about this play, which is called Our Fathers, Lovers, Sons, and Little Brothers. 
And it's the story of Trayvon Martin as told by uh, Dora award-winning playwright and actor Makambe Samamba. And so it's going to be really good. So that's another one, Politics of Theater on May 3rd. Um, and uh, folks can get on uh, the website. Just Yes, thefoldcanada.org. You can follow The Fold on Twitter or Instagram. Yes, it's, it's very easy to remember. It's F-O-L-D, Fold, and Canada. you're good to go. You can't miss it. Now you have a book coming up. Yes. Out in 2020, this year. 2020. 2021, 2021. 2021? <laughs> I was too slow, but now maybe that was a good idea anyways. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about, because this is not, this is not going to be a memoir. This is yeah. JL putting her writing, putting her mouth on paper. Tell well, the, I, you want to tell, I, I, I am so nervous about this book, so nervous. And I, I, I literally submitted it to my editor and was like, this is a terrible idea. Um, I want to take it all back. Uh, but I've been working on it for almost ten, eight years, 10 years. I don't even know. I'm losing count because I don't want to think about it. Um, but it's called Gutter Child. And for me, it's the continuation of thought from writing The Stone Thrower. Um, when I was in, when I was, uh, researching Stone Thrower and then when I went back for a documentary, um, I met a young man who was the same age as me, who was still living in the projects where my dad grew up and was like, Hey, Chuck, you know, my mom. And there was this conversation between them. And I realized in that moment, this man had only known the projects in Portsmouth, Ohio, and his mother had only known the projects in Portsmouth, Ohio as a life. And I had lived so far away from the projects in Portsmouth that it was like, um, new territory, unfamiliar, uh, you know, his experience, just, it was, his life was so different from mine. And in that moment, I realized, you know, what was it that made it possible for my dad to do all these things for me? And that made it made so difficult for his mom to, to make any change in her circumstances. And so gutter child is like my questions from that moment. And it's me asking, you know, what does it mean to grow up in a world that's designed for your failure? where the laws of the country and the rules of the country were literally built hoping for your failure or making your success extremely difficult. And so it's a dystopia uh, that's set in the past. It's based sort of on this in the sixties. And it's about a world where the rules are stacked against the black community. And these five uh, young people have to figure their way out. And it follows really closely uh, from the perspective of one young woman and the choices she makes and has to make in order to stay alive and to try and change her circumstances. Wow, I'm excited about it. I can't wait. I can't wait. Um, <laughs> I'm super, super excited. I, I know you You must, a lot of folks will be. Will see this and they will probably, you know, you probably want to share something as it relates to, you know, all of this COVID-19 going on in the States, uh, as it relates to, you know, people not wanting to stay indoors. As an author who spends most of your time indoors, <laughs> you know, you could probably shed some light as to, you know, what people can do differently, what they can try to do uh, differently. Um, because, you know, in this, especially in the States, not so much in Canada. I mean, the numbers are growing in Canada, but I think Canadians are super, super obedient. Mm -hmm. And, and they, I think they, I think out of fear that we might lose our health insurance, yeah. they're like, we're going to stay home because we're putting a lot of pressure. Um, whereas in the States, people are like, whatever, you know, like people, I, I've seen videos of people crying, nurses, doctors crying, people are dying and people are still having church this weekend. 
Yes, people are still going to be going planning church services this weekend. Whereas here in Canada, we cannot gather maximum of ten people. Yeah. That's five. It. It's not five. Five now. Five now. Maximum of five people at any gathering right now in Canada. How do you feel about that? So oh. I have no tolerance for churches that are continuing to meet. I'm not even going to be like, I'm not even going to dance around. I have no tolerance. Um, for me, it speaks to a real lack of understanding of um, who God is and what the word really says. I think people are using the words like fear, that people aren't going out out of fear. It's not out of fear. It's about care and concern for my fellow human. I mean, I feel great. I feel healthy. I don't think I have COVID. I don't think anyone in my family has COVID. But if I go somewhere and I do happen to have it and I don't know, I could kill a whole bunch of people. I could make a lot of people I care about sick. And the thing that bothers me about it is like church isn't about a building and it's on on about a bunch of people getting together every Sunday. That's not what it is at all. Church or faith or Christ or whatever religion you're part of, it's about your relationship with God. And for me, that can happen in my home. I don't have to be in a physical space to do that. I've been going to online churches since the um, coronavirus uh, situation began, and I can continue to do that. And I can continue to do that any day of the week that I was like. I don't need to risk the lives of people who are probably more physically vulnerable than I am by just assuming or mis misplacing what faith looks like. Um, and so I, I don't really have any tolerance for it. Um, I think that Easter and Good Friday are really special, important holidays. I know there's a lot of traditions that are tied up in it, but it is a lot of tradition. And when you look at the heart of it, you can celebrate the resurrection wherever you are. Well said. Where can we, yeah, go ahead. Oh, you were, you were asking about activities for people to do, like things. Yeah. Well, I, I think people have to be really gracious with themselves during quarantine. I think some people, um, you know, there's a pressure to be productive, to do all these things. I'm trying to like wake up on a day and be like, what do I want to get done today? What am I going to be really proud or happy with? at the end of the day, if I've done it or not done it. And so like, yes, was it yesterday or the day I woke up, I'm like, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to not go, but I'm going to watch church with my family. I am then going to not do the dishes. I am going to watch a couple hours of whatever I feel like. And then we're going to just, I'm going to exercise. I'm going to do a little exercise. I see yoga. you working out. I see that. <laughs> and do a little <laughs> yoga. And then I'm just, I'm going to go to bed. You know, like that was my day. There was like very little productivity involved. I think I tried to start playing the guitar at one point. Um, and then there's been other days where I've been like, I really want to do this, this, and this. I'm going to clean this cupboard. And so I think it's on the days you feel productive, be productive. On the days where you don't want to be productive, don't be productive. But like, uh, also make plans to connect with people, like make appointments and dates to call people and sit down and have a chat. Because I think the loneliness can really mess with your brain. Um, I also just as a cautionary tale, I think it's really important to move your body in whatever way you can and to eat mindfully. And I don't say that out of like a, a body shaming kind of way. I say that because I think when you, when you um, don't eat mindfully, you can contribute to like greater sadness and deeper sadness. And so it's like about eating mindfully and moving mindfully so that 
the sadness isn't piling on top of it. You're not like physiologically sad as well as like emotionally sad as well as all these other things. So to just keep those things front of mind, um, I think has really been important for me. Great advice. Great advice. Where can we find, follow you? Yeah. Um, so the great thing about having a name like JL is that you get the Twitter accounts that you want. And Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so just like you can find JL Joseph anywhere uh, on the Instagram exactly and Twitter, um, JL Richardson. And this is great. I don't even have to tell people how to spell my name. It's amazing. Um, so, so I'm JL Richardson everywhere. Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook. I love um, Facebook posts I, or Twitter posts. I love when people tweet out. If you were watching this or listening to this and something was really meaningful to you, um, please just tag me. I love to just know it's hard in this. One of the hardest things about this platform in this environment is you can't see people. You don't know if anyone's listening or if they're falling asleep on their couch because you're so boring. Um, and so, so, you know, if there was something interesting, it's really encouraging to know that it was helpful to you. So you can go those places. My website, jlrichardson.com has links to my books. It also has a link to the story I mentioned that originally appeared in Room Magazine, which is called Conception. Um, so you can read the full version of Conception, which is a story about um, the miscarriages that I suffered. Um, and that's probably, and then the Fold Canada, you can find out everything else about me by following the Fold. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yes, it, it was, it was, it's definitely an honor having you here. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like a lot of young people will learn a lot. And, and just to remind um, the, the people who view, the people who are listening, that I do edit the show in pieces and I put it on YouTube as well. So sometimes, you know, you don't want to sit through the whole hour. There's certain things that, you know, who out. wouldn't want to sit through an hour of JL plus JL? Hello. <laughs> Hello, JL squared. <laughs> uh, but you never know, right? For whatever reason, you can also get it on, on YouTube and then goes on the sites and goes on my sites and everything. But uh, having having a unique name, like like our name, mm -hmm. um, you get to get all the, the handles that you want. Like, like it's jail on Instagram, on Instagram, it's jail on Twitter, you know how to find me everywhere. Everywhere. It's been a pleasure having you on. Um, we're gonna need to talk offline because I think I wanna I wanna see how I can assist um yeah. in any way possible for a full festival. Yeah. Um all the best. I'm excited about the book, your new your new book coming out. If you guys who are listening, if you it's on Audible, her her, her old book, well, the memoir. That is uh, the stone for both for, for adults and kids. So if you want to get get one for for your kids, you can, you can do that. I, I narrated the audiobook. So if you want to hear more of my voice, <laughs> you did. <laughs> I always warn people. I'm like, it's a lot of me, a lot of me. But yeah. Uh, do you do you like when you were narrating? Did you find that your voice would like go different ways at different times? And no, there's actually a producer that sort of helps you sound consistent all the way through. Um, so that was helpful. I sort of like figured out what my voice should sound like. It was hard, though, because there was a number of different ways the story is told. So I had to sort of change my voice. And it was hard to remember consistently how to change my voice for those moments. But yeah. <laughs> good job. Good stuff. Uh, of course, The Fold is sponsored by Audible as well. Full Festival. Yeah. Is sponsored by Audible, and uh, you can register free of charge. Free, free, all every single one. You're home. You got nothing to do. Um, feed your mind. Feed your brain. 
you know, and and join the Faux Festival. That's April 30th to May 5th, 2nd. May 3rd is the official date. We have one event May 4th where we'll talk about like how the weekend went, but that's yeah. it. Yeah. 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 So join JL, other JL. Uh, thanks, JL, for, for being on here with us. Really thanks. appreciate it. And uh, to all those of you who tuned in, thank you so very much. Until next time, happy Until Easter, time. everyone. Happy enjoy, Easter. Enjoy your Easter. Um, home. <laughs> <laughs> Stay home. Stay home. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Okay, bye bye. Bye.